Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The New Statesman. I'm Ida Volk, Europe correspondent in Berlin. I'm Emily Tampkin, senior editor U.S. in Washington, D.C. And I'm Katie Stallard, Senior Editor, China and Global Affairs, also in Washington, D.C. It's Wednesday, the 9th of November. You're listening to World Review from the New Statesman, a twice-weekly international news podcast. Every Monday, we interview a guest for their unique perspective and expertise. Then, later in the week, we come together to unpack some of the most significant stories in world affairs. This week, the United States went to the polls for the midterm elections. There's an alarming rise in the number of our people in this country condoning political violence or simply remaining silent because silence is complicity. I hope you'll ask a simple question of each candidate you might vote for. Will that person accept the legitimate will of the American people, the people voting in his district or her district? Will that person accept the outcome of the election, win or lose? Democrats were able to beat back a Republican red wave. What does it mean for the country and the wider world? And we also take a question on Marine Le Pen. Thank you for joining us. Let's begin. All right. Rumors are true. We just have one discussion topic for today. Let's let's get right into it. If Katie and I seem both a little tired and a little over-caffeinated, uh, we were doing the live blog last night, which if you missed, you can <laughs> scroll through. But we'll also put the piece to my sort of take from the night in the show notes to this app, so you don't need to do that. Anyways, here it goes. After weeks of predictions that the midterms would be a blowout victory for Republicans, Democrats, despite being the party in power and with high inflation, did better than many expected. We still don't know who will have the Senate, though it's probably more likely it will be Democrats, or the House, though it's probably more likely it will be Republicans. But this was, nationally, a good night for Democrats. What happened? And what does it mean outside the United States? Okay, so my sort of first take. There was a lot in the run-up to this that basically said that voters don't care about democracy and voters don't care about abortion. And neither of those, it turns out, are true. Or at least voters do not want to vote for outright election deniers. Obviously, the dust is still settling. But it does appear are motivated by abortion and reproductive rights. I think Republicans did not help themselves in many states by running extremist candidates. And I think while there are exceptions, so 
you know, although the governor in New York, Kathy Hochul, was able to hang on, it was closer than many thought. She's a Democrat. And although Florida seems just lost from Democrats to Republicans for now, overall, Democrats did better than expected because voters were not buying what Republicans were selling. But Katie, what what was your sort of take from the night? Yeah, I think this was a much better night than Democrats were expecting. And I think then most of us who were watching this were expecting for Democrats. I think one of the key issues I was watching for last night, and I actually watched quite a lot of the coverage on Fox News, was whether there would be once again a widespread effort to discredit the results. We have seen a wide slate of candidates who are election deniers running, some of whom have been elected. We are still seeing a very tight race for the governorship in Arizona, where Carrie Lake, one of Donald Trump's most ardent supporters and a a committed election denier, is running very, very close to the Democratic candidate. And we will likely see, I think it's probably fairly safe to say, if that result does not go her way, efforts to claim that that there were discrepancies in Arizona. We saw, we saw technical glitches with the tabulating machines in Maricopa County, Arizona. And while election officials were very clear, and in fact, even recorded a video of themselves demonstrating how the machine works and why this would not mean that people's votes couldn't be counted. We already saw last night Carrie Lake and others, in Carrie Lake's case, driving to some of the um, polling places where where this happened, trying to latch onto that as as evidence of discrepancies or, or, or potential problems with with this election. But so far, that has been limited and a fairly marginal strand of the discourse, I would say. We should also say that in certain key swing states, the Secretary of State position, who is also going to be involved in the elections in 2024, making sure they're run properly, making sure everything gets certified. It's looking very likely that most, if not all of those positions will go to Democrats. Or, you know, in Georgia, Brad Raffensperger, who was the Republican, who distinguished himself by like not giving into Trump's demands, won. So at the level where this will actually be executed, it was a good night for people who don't deny the integrity of our elections. But I interrupted, Katie, go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, I think we, you know, we, we, we've talked a lot about democracy was on the ballot during these elections. And we have so far seen, I, I don't want to get too much ahead of ourselves because we're still waiting, waiting for some really key results here, but we haven't seen widespread buy-in to the idea that, that these elections were, were fraudulent. I think maybe we can focus on some of the individual races because I'd, I'd love to know your, your thoughts. And I wonder to what extent, I think there's a danger that both sides learn the wrong lesson from last night. I think there is a there was a chance that the lesson the Democrats take away from this election was few. That was close. Uh, all good. <laughs> Nothing to learn here. Good thing the political system held up. I mean, some of these candidates were extraordinarily bad. So I, I, I'm interested in your take. For instance, if we look at Pennsylvania, how much the individual candidates and the personalities there mattered as much, perhaps more than their party affiliations. I think it's both. I think Doug Mastriano, who was beaten in the governor's race um, by Josh Shapiro, the Democrat, on the one hand, this is somebody who had alleged ties to various white supremacists and anti-Semites who used anti-Semitic rhetoric in the race, who <laughs> I think by any measure was extreme. But at the same time, part of the reason I think that Josh Shapiro won, and this is not to in any way downplay what a good candidate he was, but abortion was on the ballot in Pennsylvania in, in that 
Josh Shapiro basically said, I will veto any legislation that that serves to restrict people's access. So you can put the, the best gubernatorial candidate, if it's a Republican, that's they can't say the same. Similarly, John Fetterman beat Dr. Oz, who is a doctor, but he became famous on television, who, as Fetterman pointed out, is from Jersey. He comes off, at least in my opinion, is quite smarmy. This was closer than it would have been in that Fetterman had a stroke, which impacted, obviously, his ability to campaign. There was much made about his performance at a debate. I was actually genuinely moved when Fetterman won in that I think a lot of, I think Dr. Oz was quite cruel to him. And I think many pundits and reporters were were as well and, and really didn't give him, or more importantly, the voters of Pennsylvania, enough credit. But I also think Fetterman was a good candidate for Pennsylvania. Like, he really played up working class credentials. He fought for rural Pennsylvanian votes. And he had also been one of the people who was involved in standing up for the integrity of the elections in Pennsylvania in 2020. So I think it's hard to disentangle the policy and the politician, especially because, like, these are the people who won the Republican primary. This is what I keep coming back to is like, the fever needs to break. We cannot keep lurching from election to election, hoping that election deniers will continue to not get in office to get like the, the most extreme far right elements of American politics will not get these powerful positions. But this is who the primary is producing. And I think the same is, is true of people who were like, oh, Trump is finished after last night. Like Trump, you know, his candidates didn't do well. This isn't what people want. If if there is to be something better, and I agree, like we need one, our, our two major political parties, one of them cannot be producing this, but they need to make it through a primary first. And that's sort of the impasse that we're at. I want to switch gears just slightly here because the other way in which we're lurching from election to election is not just democracy within America, but how how America can, I, I don't know, I don't like really like the phrase defend democracy, but but defend democracy around the world insofar as it's actually doing that. What I'm saying is American alliances, I think, are also <laughs> sort of going from election to election. But Katie and Ito, you you both cover this more closely and regularly than I do. What what do you think? I have a piece this morning, which is written under the influence of a lot of caffeine in the early hours of, of much earlier this morning, looking at this and looking at specifically what this means for the war in Ukraine. I, I'd be really interested also to, to hear Edo's take looking at this, perhaps through his fingers from Europe, in that we still don't know, but it's looking lightly that the House is going to go back to Republican control. And if it does so, the lightly then Speaker Kevin McCarthy has already said that in that case, there can't be a, a quote, blank check for Ukraine. Now, we've we've since seen efforts by senior Republicans up to and including Mitch McCarthy, the Republican Senate leader, <laughs> Mitch McCarthy, sorry, that's Freudian. And we, we, we've since seen- Men um, combined into one. <laughs> Please forgive us. It has been a very long night. We have since seen efforts by senior Republican figures up to and including Republican Senate leader Mitch McConnell push back on those comments and argue that all he was saying was that there should be greater scrutiny of support for Ukraine and that there is still bipartisan will to maintain support for Ukraine at its at its current levels. But we are seeing more candidates rise and I think we will see them play a higher profile role in a narrowly divided House, potentially under Republican control, who are already campaigning or who have campaigned on cutting support for Ukraine. I'm thinking, and I'm, and I'm sorry to have to 
to, to focus on her, but Marjorie Taylor Greene, the congresswoman from Georgia who said ahead of this election that if Republicans win, there should not be a penny more for aid to Ukraine. J.D. Vance, the newly elected senator from Ohio, has also called for the U.S. to, to cut aid to Ukraine. And the, you know, the, the figure we haven't focused on so much yet in Donald Trump, who was not on, on the ballot, but whose presence very much hung, hung over this, this election as we see him reemerge onto the national political scene here, and he has he is teasing a, a very big announcement to come next week on on the fifteenth November, which could well be the the start of his pre- next presidential run. I think we will see that discourse grow, and more calls for that wing of the Republican Party to to look again at American support for Ukraine. So that that doesn't mean to say there's going to be a shift in policy in the short term. I think if anything, Democrats are going to push through more support in the coming months while they do still have control of both houses. But I think this is something really to look at in the longer term. I'm sure in in both Moscow and and Kyiv, there is great attention to the results of of this election. Two things I want to mention before I ask you for the view from Europe. One is if Democrats do accept that Florida is lost, does that change their relationship with Cuba and Venezuela? Right. If they say we're not even fighting for those votes anymore. All right. What does that mean for U.S.? policy toward those countries. I say this because people whose families came from Venezuela and Cuba have tended to be powerful political blocs in Florida and are trending more conservative. The other thing is that we haven't really mentioned Biden at all so far. And I think that's telling. I think that while this was, you know, obviously the party in power normally does less well, but this really wasn't a referendum on Biden in the same way that 2018 was on Trump, which is interesting. I don't, to be honest, I'm, I'm not sure what it means for Biden in 2024. Okay, Ido. We're here in the greater Washington, D.C. area watching this. What is the view from Europe? So I think the first thing you can say is there was a time when like certain parties and certain in Europe would have been rooting for the Republicans. People on the center-right would have seen maybe 10 or 20 years ago, leaders on the center-right in Europe would have had a natural affinity for the Republicans in, in the U.S. And that just basically doesn't exist anymore, barring like... Perhaps someone like Viktor Orban in Hungary, the Republicans are just so extreme now on so many issues. Um, obviously, the, the denial of democracy, which you've both spoken about, but also, for example, climate, they're now so extreme and they've gone, they've gone so far down the rabbit hole. There's really no one kind of respectable in Europe rooting for the Republicans now. They're just, they're seen as, as beyond the pale. So, so that's the first thing. And the second is, I don't really think we've spoken about it, but um, we were we were talking about it uh, in a meeting just before we came on the podcast. Emily, and you, you said that people in Europe will be looking at this and they'll be thinking we need to have a better guarantee than just, oh, well, the Republicans didn't win this time. There needs to be a better, like Europe's own security, obviously massive issues like like climate change, for example. Um, these issues are not going to be solved and they're not going to, the, Europe is not going to be secure if they're just hoping that every time the Republicans lose. And even though the, the Republicans, they haven't done absolutely terribly, but they haven't done as well as they were thinking that they would do, there's obviously no telling that, as you said, next time it, it could be Trump or the time after that, or you know, if, the, if, if Biden wins re-election, then uh, perhaps the Republicans win the midterms in, in four years and so on. And I, I think these elections will have, again, reinforce the sense that the Europe needs to be more independent of the US and more able to stand up 
and defend its own interests independently of the US because there's there's no guarantee that the isolationism, which is very strong in the US, even though the Republicans perhaps haven't demonstrated that it's a kind of prevailing sentiment, but they still have done very well. There's no telling that that's not going to become the prevailing sentiment, the next electoral cycle, the cycle after that. I think that's a great point. And I would just say that it goes beyond Trump, right? Like it's, it's even if they do manage to get rid of him, this is now a dominant strain of thought in the Republican Party. It's not, it's like, it, it, it's not that we have two transatlanticists like Global America parties anymore. Katie? I'll give you the the last word on this. Well, I was also I think I think that's a great point, you know, and I think it's important not to again not to sort of take away from this election the idea that Trumpism and that wing of the Republican Party has been refuted that that that's the opposite of what's happened and there are longer tr- trends taking place here almost regardless of party. You know, I think it's striking some of what we didn't see in the transition from Trump to Biden in, in in terms of trade policy, you know, there wasn't then, there, and there and there can't be for domestic political reasons here. There isn't going to be a shift back towards sudden interest again in in globalization and on on, for instance, policy towards China. I think one of the things that we're going to see come out of a potentially Republican controlled house, and which we're seeing more generally in in the discourse here, is just a continual. You know, there is probably more continuity between Trump and Biden in terms of their. China policy, then there is disparity. And we're going to see a further shift towards a tougher stance on China, more support for Taiwan. So th- those long-term trends, I think, are, are shifting away from being able to comfortably rely on American security guarantees for, you know, for, for, the, for the years and decades ahead. And I think that's something that we have to stop expecting to 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 correct i think we need to a little bit understand the 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 direction the long-term um trends here are are pointing yeah one other foreign relations issue that i'll flag um and then we have we'll move on to the u.s guest is israel apac which is the the preeminent pro-israel group backed many people who republicans who challenged the legitimacy of the 2020 election they also in some cases in one case they supported a member of Congress now or a member elect named Summer Lee in Pennsylvania. APAC supported her more conservative opponent in the primary, lost, and then came back for the general and supported her Republican opponent. She still won. Now, I don't actually think this makes a difference for Biden on on his position toward Israel. He's demonstrated again and again that he's pro-Israel in a traditional sense. But for Democrats more generally, particularly given the likely constellation of the new Israeli government, I think this perhaps contributes to to a trend. We will leave this discussion there. Um, I'll put my piece, my, my spicy take in the show notes to this episode. Wherever you are in the world, if you're interested in global affairs, you can subscribe to The New Statesman in digital, in print, or both from as little as one pound a week. That's 12 weeks for just £12. That's one euro a week in Europe and just $2 a week in America. Just go to www.newstatesman.com slash podcast offer. From the New Statesman comes a new podcast, Audio Long Reads. The best of our reported features and essays, read aloud. Featuring writing from our authors, including... 
The historian Colin Kidd on Watergate's renewed relevance in a post-Trump era. Today's obsessions about a deep state took their rise in the 70s amid this climate of anxiety. Jeff Dyer's reflections on how to grow old in America. He was propped up in bed, proudly sporting a badge. Private medicine makes me sick. Maria Vilcek tells the story of how the hard men of Belarusian football took on Alexander Lukashenko. Hundreds of ultras were roughed up and held in custody. One was later found dead in suspicious circumstances. Ease into the weekend with our audio long reads, published every Saturday morning. Just search Audio Long Reads from the New Statesman wherever you get your podcasts. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. We're going to move to a section that we like to call... You Ask Us. You Ask Us. Nice. Okay. Now, our question this week is not about the United States, you lucky listeners. Amos wanted to know, what does Marine Le Pen's resignation and replacement as head of the national rally mean for the future of the French far right? There's only one person we're going to turn to for this, Ido. So as the question correctly says, the national rally, which is France's uh, far right party or main far right party, is now led by someone called Jordan Bardella, which is the first time in its 50 year history that it's been it hasn't been led by someone called Le Pen because it was founded by Jean-Marie Le Pen in 1972. And then he handed over the reins of power to his daughter Marine in 2011. And now for the first time, it's led by someone whose second name is not Le Pen. So who is Bardella? He's really young. He's 27. He was born in the département, which is uh, the region of Saint-Saint-Denis, which is north of Paris to an Italian mother and a French father of Italian and partial Algerian uh, Kabyle ancestry. And he's described himself as the son of a family more French by the intensity of its patriotic feeling than by its number of generations. His social background is also relatively modest. And this is a contrast with Marine Le Pen. So while they both grew up in the Paris region, Le Pen grew up on a 5,000 square meter family estate in the Haute-Seine, which is uh, France's richest département, while Saint-Saint-Denis is the poorest. 
And so when Bardella describes the episodes which formed him, he focuses more on themes of identity and security rather than economics and constitutional issues. So for example, he said that my first political memory was the 2005 riots, which is a reference to riots which were sparked by the deaths of two black and Arab teenagers fleeing from police, which were France's worst in a generation. And he said, I don't have any memory of the 2005 referendum, but I very clearly remember the riots because there were fires outside my building. And in 2013, he joined what was then still the National Front. He was noticed early by Le Pen, and his rise through the ranks of the party was really meteoric. So in 2015, he was elected as a regional councillor for Saint-Saint-Louis. In 2019, at 23, he was selected to head the RN slate for that year's European elections, which the party won, which made him the second youngest MEP ever elected. He's been trusted to to rise so fast by Le Pen is really kind of her protégé because uh, she views him as a skilled orator, which he is, so, someone who's comfortable facing off against ministers and uh, left-wing journalists live on TV, crucially without the kind of gaffes which politicians at all levels of the party are known for, uh, of which are more in the moment. Le Pen really chose him as her protégé and kind of pretty much engineered this handover of the party presidency to him. And this is, this is kind of widely believed to be so that she can focus on running the parliamentary faction of the national rally, which is at 89, uh, the largest in history, and also prepare her next run for president in 2027, which she is likely to, to do. And most kind of commentators and observers believe that because Bardilla is so young, because he has quite a limited political identity that is sort of separate from the Pens. She'll probably continue to call the shots, uh, even though she's formally kind of resigned as part of the party structures. But um, he's, you know, he's such a close ally of hers and his views, they diverge a bit, but really he's he's pretty kind of tacked on to, to the same views and the same party line that she has promoted. To the extent that he does have a separate political identity, it's one more sympathetic to the ethnic nationalism, which uh, Le Pen largely shuns. So, for example, he said that he believes in the, quote, great replacement conspiracy theory. So he said, I don't use the expression great replacement, which has certain connotations, but I recognize the genuine reality it describes. I've lived it and I see it every day. And he's also called for kind of greater unity between the far right represented by Le Pen and the far right represented by Eric Zimmer. So someone who's m- much more willing to espouse ethnic, ethnic nationalism and these kind of conspiracy theories than Le Pen has. And there's actually an ironic anecdote, which is that someone called Grégoire de Fournas, who was an MP elected as part of the RN wave in this June's legislative elections, was rumoured to be in line to be appointed party uh, spokesperson after Bardella's succession. But just two days before Bardella became president, de Fournage shout, shouted, let him go back to Africa or let it go back to Africa. While Carlos Martins Bilongo, who's a black MP for the left-wing France Unbowed Party, was speaking about a humanitarian boat transporting 300 migrants rec- rescued off the coast of Libya. So, and obviously that caused a huge, huge outcry. The party says that he, that de Fournage was not talking about the MP, but talking about the boat but it's actually indistinguishable in French as to whether what the object of the sentence was, as it would be in English, where you could understand if it was it or him or they for that matter. But the, but it's indistinguishable in French. But anyway, this kind of very racially 
tinged, if not outright racist, outburst really overshadowed what should have been quite a historic moment for the party. It's handover to someone to someone uh, different than than Le Pen, at least formally, and kind of another step in the professionalization and the banalization of the party. Certainly one to watch. Thanks for that, Ido. Thank you to all of you who sent in your questions. Listeners, you can send yours in at www.newstatesman.com slash you ask us or by tweeting at us. Um, before I throw it to Ido to get us out of here, a reminder that I should have done at the top, all four episodes of Nationalism Reimagined are out now. The last one is on the United States, so relevant to today's discussion. And obviously, we are not done unpacking the midterms as we do not know totally what the midterm results are. So stay tuned. Newstatesman.com slash international. All right, Ido, over to you. That's all the time we have for today. Tune us on Monday for our interview episode with Adam Crafton, a journalist for The Athletic, about his podcast series following Shakhtar Donetsk, the football club. If you are a regular World Review listener and you haven't already subscribed, please subscribe. And if you've already subscribed, thank you. Please also rate us five stars and leave us a good review. It really does help. Our producer has been Mae Robson. Thank you for listening and until next time. 